This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Women Askcast on Askblog.com, coming at you this week with not one but two full episodes, that's right. We're looking ahead to the Tokyo Olympics, which kick off later this month, and obviously, specifically the women's football tournament. Plenty of Arsenal interest therein. We'll have, um, I think, nine players overall across four teams, and those are the four teams we're going to look at in this two-part episode. Um, in this episode, we will look at and talk about with some very distinguished guests who've been on the podcast before. Um, we'll talk with Samantha Lewis, um, our expert on all things Australia and Matildas. And obviously, Arsenal have three players in the Matildas squad for the Tokyo game. So we'll talk to Samantha a bit about Australia's chances, what's been happening with the Matildas over the last 18 months, because things have been a little bit crazy for them with the situation. Um, and obviously we'll talk specifically about Caitlin Ford, Steph Catley and Lydia Williams. And then in part two, Alex and I will be talking to Anne-Marie Posma, who is also um, I think making a second appearance on the podcast and she is our expert on all things Netherlands um, and she's been following their games and covering their games for many years now. We talk with her about uh, the Netherlands expectations in Tokyo uh, this summer as well as the uh, legacy of Serena Weigman. Obviously, she will leave her role as Netherlands head coach this summer and come across to be the Lionesses, the England Lionesses head coach. And obviously, we'll talk with her as well a little bit about Danielle van der Donk and Jill Roord, both of whom left the club this summer, and Vivian Miedemer, who is now the sole Arsenal representation in the Netherlands squad, but quite a few former Arsenal players in there as well. And Alex and I have a really interesting chat with Anne-Marie about Netherlands, about their team at the moment and where they see themselves and whether they can win this thing having been to the World Cup final in 2019 and winning the European Championships in 2017 but without further ado Alex and I will now talk to Samantha Lewis about the Matildas. Okay, so joining myself and Alex now with her third appearance on this podcast which Samantha puts you level on the leaderboard of appearances with <laughs> Leah Williamson um, so esteemed company there. But to talk about Australia, the Matildas at this summer's Olympics, we've got um, from The Guardian, ESPN, Australia, Optus, and one of the hosts of the Far Post podcast, Samantha Lewis. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What an honour to be considered among the rung of uh, Leah Williamson. Wow. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, kind of becoming our Australian correspondent by proxy. Um <laughs> 
but, but Australia, obviously, Arsenal don't have an Australian coach anymore, but we do still have three Australian players who will be going to Tokyo this summer. Uh, well, summer for us. And I'm conscious I keep saying summer, uh, which showing some hemisphere bias there, but in <laughs> July and August anyway. Um, and Samantha, I, I just wondered as a, as a kind of starting point, um, it, it's been a quite a weird 18 months, well, for everyone, but really for the Matildas as well, because there's kind of at the same time a lot happening and a lot not happening. Um, so I wondered if, just to bring us up to speed, you could kind of do like do a kind of broad overview of what's happened with the Matildas since they qualified um, for the Olympics, which was really kind of at the eye of the storm of the pandemic last March. It absolutely was, yeah. Uh, I think the Matildas and Australian football um, were sort of at the forefront of a lot of the lockdowns, actually, uh, because Australia were meant to fly to Wuhan to play in their Olympic qualifiers against China. Um, and that was when the outbreak first started. And thankfully, Football Australia were quite conscious of the unfolding situation there. And so they decided to rapidly move the uh, Olympic qualifiers to Australia. Um, so we did have home ground advantage in that sense, I suppose. Um, and we skated through that, I think, pretty comfortably, albeit with a, a, a tricky draw against a, a very well-drilled China. But since then, like all other nations in world football, everything stopped. And I think of, of most of the teams who are going to be competing in Tokyo this year in the women's football tournament, the Matildas went for one of the longest periods not playing a game together. So after qualifying for Tokyo, they went for over 400 days without actually being together in a camp or playing a friendly game, which is a pretty serious amount of time, especially considering how little time international football coaches get with their players to begin with. I think in total, I counted it once, it was about 60 days in, in total in a, in a full calendar year, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, and on top of that, of course, we had a new coach come in as well, Tony Gustafsson, uh, the Swede, former assistant to the US Women's National Team. Really exciting appointment, but we didn't actually get to see him do anything for a really long time. So one of the, the really great things that Football Australia quite quickly organised was trying to get the Matildas to play a number of different friendlies against some really serious top 10 opposition in the lead up to the Olympics. So over the last couple of months, we have had two friendly series. The first series in April was against uh, Germany and the Netherlands. And the second series was against Denmark and Sweden. And over the course of those four games, the Matildas, uh, they got gradually better. You could see that they started to understand what Gustafsson was wanting them to do. He was experimenting with different players. Um, for the first series, there were no players who were actually able to be chosen who were based in Australia because of border situations here. So all of the Matildas that had to be chosen for that first friendly series were either based in Europe or based in the United States in college system. So we did get a couple of players here and there who may not have actually got a look in otherwise. So it sort of became its own little silver lining. And then in the second series, we did have a couple of uh, Australia-based Matildas who were called across as well to, to feature in those games. Um, we did didn't win any of them. Um, I, I don't think anyone was really surprised that we didn't win any of them, considering the calibre of the opposition. But we did put on, I think, a very impressive performance in a, a nil-all draw against Sweden, who we're going to be facing in our 
in our group, in Group G, alongside the United States and New Zealand. So, yeah, I mean, I think considering the, the pandemic, considering all the wider circumstances that have affected all the national teams, we're sort of just doing what we can to, to be at, at, at a, a sort of a, a peak performance, you know, moment for this group of players um, heading into Tokyo. And, and hopefully that'll, that'll stand us in good stead. Yeah, and I think there are going to be quite a lot. I mean, I I do think it's quite unique with uh, the Matildas, as as you referenced, the border situation. We know that, uh, you know, the big Australian diaspora that's in the WSL still are here in London because they can't go home. Um, which which I think is quite an extraordinary circumstance as well. But, um, you know, you referenced the games, uh, particularly against Germany and Netherlands, which, you know, featured some, some quite heavy defeats. Was that, do you think, to be expected? And if those games were played in a different circumstance, do you think that they would have been much different? Or do you think that that kind of demonstrates perhaps the gap between Australia and, you know, top kind of top five opposition, really? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's important to keep context in mind, especially now, Um, given what I mentioned before about how long it had been since the Matildas had even been together in a national team camp. You know, that that can really affect team chemistry. It can really, particularly with a new coach coming in, a new style, a new philosophy, and then coming up against opposition who have been together in camp with, you know, a lot of players who play together at club level. Um, They've been playing European qualifiers, for example. They've been playing friendlies across Europe because the border situation is a little bit more relaxed there. So the Matildas sort of came into the games against Germany and the Netherlands at a real sort of structural disadvantage in a lot of ways because their environment and their context just didn't allow them uh, to have the same access to resources or to each other that their opposition did. And so we did see some pretty heavy defeats. It was a a 5-2 loss to Germany and a 5-0 loss to the Netherlands. Um, But again, we were were experimenting with players. Tony was still still meeting them. That was actually the first time that he had met a lot of these players um, in in a national team camp setup. So even just getting familiar with each other again, I think, takes a lot of time. And as I mentioned, over the course of the four friendly games that they played, they did start to develop that chemistry. You could really start to see it on the field and you could start to see Tony experimenting with different formations, moving different players into different positions, because at that stage, Tokyo was still only going to be an 18 player squad. And so decisions were being made based on who could be really versatile and who could rotate in the case of injuries, for example, or fatigue. Um, But luckily, Tokyo and the International Olympic Committee uh, saw sense and they decided to expand the squad length to 22, which I personally think should stay because the amount of football that players are playing already is just extraordinary and the stress on their bodies is really quite, you know, significant. Um, so, yeah, so I, over the course of those those games, I mean, I think the, the Matildas showed that they are able to learn quickly. Um, they are adapting to um, Tony... I think in leaps and bounds and they seem to all really be buying into what he is trying to create here, which I think for us, considering our history, when it comes to national team coaches, the the sort of uh, ups and downs of the last couple of years and, and the sort of disappointing uh, women's world cup performance in 2019, I think it, it sort of, it gives a lot of uh, confidence to, to Matilda's fans. I think we can all agree that the Matildas have a really strong squad, individual players. Um, and obviously with a lot of them coming to the WSL, it kind of, you know, it stepped up that that level. Um, obviously, you know, NWSL is a great league, but when you come to the WSL, you know, you're playing against the perennials, harders, some 
Cruz among one of the best in the world. You know, it just brings a different kind of uh, style play. And then you can start competing with the likes of Sweden and all these different countries that have that very similar style play in Europe. But, you know, we, we talk, I think Tim and I could probably agree, you know, Steph Catley, Lydia Williams, uh, Caitlin Ford, amongst other Matildas players are amazing. But do you think this um, is coming a bit too soon for Tony and the Matildas? Uh, I mean, yes. Yeah, I think it is a bit too soon. And one of the things that I'm personally a little bit worried about is that particularly here in Australia, our, our sport media and our football media um, tends not to be very uh, I, sort of broad viewing. Um, for example, when we, when a lot of the sort of major uh, mainstream publications here watched the Matildas through, uh, through France, they were shocked that they lost to Italy, for example. But nobody who had watched the Italian women's national team for a couple of years were really shocked because they knew that they were fantastic. Uh, and so I'm worried that that same sort of tunnel vision is going to affect uh, the way that uh, the media cover the Matildas this Olympics, because I, I do I do think that they're they're probably a bit undercooked. Um, I'm I'm not super convinced they'll make it very far past perhaps the quarterfinals, um, especially considering the sort of road that is mapped out for them in terms of groups and who could finish where and and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned, Alex, you know, we, we do have some incredible players. We have some really, really high-quality players, Sam Kerr obviously being the, the cream of the crop there. But I think, you know, when we look outside of uh, this sort of starting 11, this golden generation, that that's a term that we use here in Australia to describe this particular team, there is quite a significant drop between that senior team and the generation who is coming through. And I think we sort of see that in the squad selection that Tony has made for the Olympics. There's only a handful of players under the age of 23. And they are really like the the best of the best young players that Australia has produced over the last couple of years. Because there is just this uh, Football Australia, our, our national federation, produced a performance gap report, which found that this particular uh, sort of generation, this squad of Matildas, have just accelerated far beyond the structures that Australian football can actually keep up with. So even though it's great that we do have this fantastic Matildas team at the moment who can go very far, and a lot of them are reaching their peak performance period as well, sort of between the ages of, I guess, 26 and 32. After that, that's, I think, where the, the big question is is going to be asked, is, is whether consecutive generations of Matildas are going to be able to keep up with the sort of the fantastic results and the, the energy and the vibe that this current generation has been able to produce. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I think it's one that we can't really answer until maybe five years, seven years from yeah, now. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bit, you know, a bit of a shame. Um, but you mentioned there kind of the journey that the Matildas have uh, on this. Obviously, the best two uh, third place um, teams from each group get to go forward and, and play. Um, so obviously, the order is you know New Zealand, Sweden, USA. How do you feel about that order? You know, obviously, New Zealand is kind of head in head with Australia in terms of, you know, they had the same complications um, in terms of COVID. They haven't been together in X amount of time. Would you rather that kind of a level level uh, competition and then easily grow into the competition as, you know, obviously the, the third match is against the U.S., which um, they're, they've been pretty strong. You know, they've been playing 
pretty good games uh, in their warm up to the Olympics. So how do you feel about that journey just in the group stage? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think this is the best possible draw that the Matildas actually could have been given because coming off the back of those four friendlies, as I mentioned, we didn't get a win. And I think what the Matildas really need now for their confidence and what Tony Gustafson needs for his confidence as well and to get Australian fans and Australian media to really buy into what he's trying to do here, he needs a win. And of all the all the teams that we're going to be playing in the group stage of Tokyo, New Zealand is the team that we almost certainly are going to get points over, um, and probably probably the team that we're going to put a bunch of goals past as well, which I think is going to be really important specifically for the confidence of Sam Kerr, because she over the course of those four friendlies was absolutely marked out of every single game, and this is the problem when you become one of the best players in the world. You all of a sudden have this massive target on your back, and every opposition team is going to put two players on you constantly. They know that you're the threat. And so the Matildas have had to try and find ways around that. They've brought in a couple different kinds of strikers to kind of uh, complement Sam, to move her out into different positions. This is where I think her chemistry with Caitlin Ford comes really, really in handy because they've been playing together for a long time and they can really bounce off each other and, and sort of improvise. And we saw that in the Women's World Cup as well. So I think that that New Zealand game is going to be a really important sort of foundation game for the Matildas to really assert themselves on the Olympics, to show themselves, to show their fans, to show the other opposition teams that they are here, that they can play, that they are ready to take whatever challenges come their way as well and as brightly as they can. I think moving into the second game against Sweden, again, it's a sort of a progressive, it's almost like a video game, right, to the final boss. So the second stage against Sweden, we played Sweden in a friendly, nil all draw. I don't think either team in that friendly really showed their full hand. Um, I think it was a, a little bit strategic on the on behalf of both of those coaches. And Sweden also didn't have a, uh, their full-strength squad available for that game. And the Matildas were quite fatigued um, on purpose, so I've been told. So that's uh, it's sort of difficult to assess how they're going to go based on that, on that game. But I do like the look of Sweden. I, I think they're going to be one of the dark horses for Tokyo. They tend to do quite well in these kinds of uh, high-pressure tournaments. And they also drew against the USA not too long ago as well. So, you know, heading into then the, the third and final game of the group against the US, it's a team that the Matildas have only ever beaten once. It was in a friendly in 2017 and it was 1-0. Um, I don't think the USA are infallible. Um, they do have weaknesses. And I think one of the uh, the most important things that we have in, in our arsenal is Tony Gustafson, because he, that's exactly where he came from you know, only a year ago. So he's familiar with all the players there. He coached a lot of them through the Women's World Cup wins. Uh, he, he, can, he knows their strengths, but he also knows perhaps what their Achilles heels are. And maybe he's able to bring some of that insight into the way the Matildas uh, go for that third game. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to make it into the into the next stage. It's just about where we finish on the ladder and who we want to be playing in the next round that I think is going to uh, it's going to matter. And um, you know, we referenced obviously there are a few Arsenal players um, in the Matilda squad, and I just want to talk about a couple of them now. Um, unfortunately, at Arsenal, we got to see almost none of Steph Catley um, yeah. this season. Lydia was in and out of the team, um, which we expected because Joe likes to rotate his goalkeepers, but. I think, um, I mean, I was actually quite surprised this week. They announced uh, the top three for Arsenal's player of the season and Caitlin Ford wasn't in the top three, which really surprised me because most people I speak to agree 
she has been since she arrived one of Arsenal's um, most consistent performers. I mean, you, I mean, particularly on her, your podcast, you guys focus a lot on the Australian players in the WSL. What what have you made of Caitlin at, at Arsenal um, and and how she's kind of taken to the league as well as the team? I mean, she's taken to Arsenal like a duck to water. Wouldn't you agree? Like I remember yep. Tim when I was invited onto this pod to to talk about Caitlin signing for Arsenal, and you asked me about her her sort of style of play and whether I thought that she would really fit into what Arsenal was as a team. And I was like, absolutely. She is just like crossing the T's and dotting the I's. She is the perfect fit for the kind of style of play, the philosophy of play that Montemurro had instilled in this Arsenal side. And we saw that happen. We saw it come to fruition. And one of the things that I I think I was most – um, most proud of is that Ford really grew into her game, really grew in confidence and really started to deliver when Arsenal was sort of suffering a couple of serious injuries. She was the player who sort of was maybe milling around on the fringes a little bit, but when she got her opportunity, she took it with both hands and she basically forced herself into that starting 11, even when some of those players returned from injury. So that was really exciting to see. And I think that she, absolutely grew as a player. I think she's much more, uh, she's much stronger. She's much more solid on the ball. I think she's smarter in her, um, her sort of one-on-ones in terms of taking players on. I think she's much more clever in terms of using space and bouncing off other players and using them in that kind of one, two dynamic, um, like she does with Sam Kerr. And like, I think is going to be really important when it comes to Tokyo as well. Um, and, but she was never really used as a fullback, which I guess makes sense. But, you know, that was sort of one of the sort of the, the fabulous things about being, having such a versatile player like Caitlin Ford um, at Arsenal is that she does have experience at fullback. And she was named, I think, the best young player at the 2011, 20, I'm not sure, 2011 Women's World Cup, perhaps, um, Well, while playing in fullback. And she there was a game against Brazil where she kept Marta in her pocket and everyone was absolutely stoked because she was 15 and she was just this random Aussie who was just doing a thing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I've loved seeing Ford, uh, really, really enjoy her football as well at Arsenal. I think that's one of the most positive takeaways for a lot of these players is that they haven't just come over to the WSL to improve their technical game or to, um, play against high quality sort of opposition or with high quality players, but they also just seem to be really enjoying themselves. And I think that's a, that's a really big part of being a successful and a talented footballer is being comfortable, being confident and really enjoying the environment that you're in. So I think that was fabulous to see from from Ford. And I, again, like you, I was really disappointed with with Catley as well. You know, the series of injuries that she's gone through, it's not just even in her time in Arsenal, but sort of prior to that as well, she'd struggled with quite a, quite a few injuries. And she, despite all of that, is I think probably still one of our best fullbacks that we have ever produced in Australian women's football. And it's just such a shame that Arsenal fans weren't able to really see her at full flight, really to see what she can do because she is the quintessential bombing down the wings, attacking from basically right on the goal line type of fullback. She's incredibly disciplined. She's really smart. Uh, She's also very versatile, can play in centre-back roles, can play at fullback, can play as a winger. And she's also just a great person. And I, I'm sure that uh, a lot of Arsenal fans probably would have seen a lot of the <laughs> social media uh, banter that her and Lydia Williams uh, got along with because they, they are very, very good friends and they were, they were housemates and they've known each other for such a long time and they make videos together and it's this, it's this whole wholesome little friendship that I just adore. So bringing that sort of energy, I think, to the club as well, even if she wasn't playing on the field, I think that probably contributed a lot to the team too. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I wanted to talk um, a little bit about Lydia as well, because it, it's it's been an interesting season for her because we had a manager who's very upfront about the fact he likes to rotate goalkeepers. That's quite unique. I'm not sure that Jonas Eideveld, the new coach, will do that. So, And Arsenal have got Manu Zinsberger and Lydia, so I do think it will probably be more of a number one, number two, and it, will, it, it remains to be seen where she'll come in the pecking order. But I kind of noticed that um, the Matildas had been playing uh, Tegan Micah um, in goal for some of these friendlies and obviously there's a bit of future proofing going on there because Tegan's 23 Lydia's 33 so kind of looking ahead I think particularly to that World Cup is is there a sense that that is at this stage only future proofing or is Lydia's place under any immediate threat do you think? I don't think Lydia's place is under threat. No, she is the most capped Matilda that we currently have. She is extraordinarily experienced, particularly when it comes to big tournaments like this. And she's also like, even though she is you know, getting on along with age, she is aging like a fine wine. I think she's getting better and better as she gets older. Um, even though she didn't really get the consistent game time that perhaps she was after at Arsenal, I think a lot of her performances were still quite impressive. And she definitely, uh, you know, put herself in contention for a regular starting spot if that was the philosophy that Monomero had. Um, but with when it comes to Tegan Micah, she, she's a really interesting case. And I'm personally really excited because I, I love talking about Australia's youth players. And Micah was uh, far and away the best goalkeeper in the most recent W League season that we had. She played for Melbourne City. And even though City didn't do particularly well, she was far and away the best goalkeeper. She's only 23. Uh, she went through the US college system. She was quite successful there. She's played in Norway. Um, and she got her first sort of real shot under Tony in one of these friendlies. Uh, it was the, the friendly against Sweden. And to make your international debut and to keep a clean sheet against a team that finished third in the most recent Women's World Cup is quite an extraordinary feat for such a young player. Um, and so I think the conversation in a Matilda's context is much more about the number two goalkeeper because uh, can, compared to Micah, we had Mackenzie Arnold, who plays for West Ham in the WSL. Uh, but unfortunately, in uh, two of the friendlies that she played with the Matildas recently, she led in a couple of clangers. Uh, there was an own goal that she slapped into her own net. There were a couple of some some pretty basic, I guess, goalkeeping errors that would have put a seed of doubt, I think, into Gustafsson's mind and really inspired him to, to bring Micah in and to see what she could do. And like Ford at Arsenal, Micah took her opportunity with both hands and she's been rewarded for it by being the second choice goalkeeper called into this Olympic squad. So I think it's it's definitely partially uh, future-proofing. I think she is absolutely the natural heir to the senior Matilda's number one goalkeeper spot. But I think also she's just a really talented young goalkeeper and she's going to learn a lot from this experience. And I hope that she gets minutes against perhaps a New Zealand or a Sweden because we've seen what she can do and she can do it really well. And we talk a lot about that gap between the golden generation, as you, as you say, and all the, the younger players coming up, whether it be through the college system. But to continue that, you know, after the collegiate system into kind of the professional and then into the Matildas, you know, the Olympics, the World Cups, all these competitions. Do you think that players should stay in the WSL? So when Tony uh, first took over as Matilda's coach, he was asked about this question because it was sort of in the midst of this European exodus, as we called it, where we had a lot of Matildas moving across to Europe, joining the WSL, even joining other European leagues as well, Sweden, Norway, some in Germany. 
Um, and he was asked, you know, what he thought about it, whether he thought it was a good idea, whether he we should all sort of be encouraging more young Australian players to pursue opportunities in Europe. And his answer, I think, was was really important and really sort of lovely. He said, you know what, a, a player's path depends on the player. A player could go to Europe and they could have a fantastic time and learn a lot. But similarly, a player could go to, to Europe and, and not learn anything. They could actually sometimes go backwards. And we saw some of that happen, actually, with a, a handful of Australian players. Uh, Jenna McCormick, for example, went to Spain and she really did not like the experience at all. And she she came back to the W League quite quickly. Um, Alex Chidiak is another good example. She went to Atletico Madrid. She was one of the first Matildas, really, to make this sort of foray out into uh, the wilderness of Europe. But she, again, a, a sort of combination of injuries and I guess squad selection just meant that she very rarely got picked and she didn't really play for the two or three years that she was there. So I think it, it all depends on the player. It depends on what the player uh, wants to do, what they want to work on in their game, what they're looking for um, and how their expectations are matched by the reality of the situation when they get there as well. You know, we talk about the WSL as being this fantastic, fully professional league, but then you hear stories of a Birmingham City or a Bristol, you know, clubs that are not really reaching those same kinds of standards as an Arsenal or a Chelsea or a City or even even recently, you know, conversation about Manchester United's women's team. They're not giving the appropriate training facilities and you're seeing this huge exodus of players from that club, like that club of all clubs, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends on the player. And I think what Tony has brought to this group and what he's trying to instill in the rest of the Australian women's football community is that your path is your path. If you don't want to go to Europe, that's fine. You can go somewhere else. There are so many other places that you can play. You can stay in Australia. We've got a Alex Chidiak, for example, has decided to come back to Australia and then go to Japan because there's a new fully professional women's league starting up there and she wants to focus on that part of her game. And that's great. If that's what the player wants, that's fabulous. And so empowering players to make those kinds of decisions, to value their mental health, to value the rest of their lives as well outside of just football. You know, it's great to play for a fabulous club, but if you hate where you live, if you're not enjoying the weather, if you don't enjoy the culture, that all sort of folds into your performances on the field in one way or another as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, my answer is basically it depends. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just as a, a final one before we let you go, Sam, um, you know, you we kind of said that a feeling that maybe, not least because of the situation that this tournament might be a bit early um, for the Matildas, is there a sense both um, for the Matildas and maybe for, for Tony Gustafsson as well that, that this is like about building towards 2023? And do you think this group will mainly be the one that we'll see in the 2023 World Cup? I think this is absolutely um, a case of building towards 2023. 2023 is going to be the most important moment, not just for Australian women's football, but for Australian football for a very, very, very long time. And now that we know that we're hosting it, all the work has started, all the people are being recruited. There's a lot of foundations being laid that's the tournament where the Matildas really need to make a statement. To be able to win a World Cup on home soil is an extraordinary feat. And if they were to do that, even if they were to get close to that, it would it would really revolutionise the game here and across Asia and also across the, the Pacific, across the OFC, who we're, we're co-hosting with New Zealand. 
So I think this is this is definitely part of that process. And Gustafsson, Sam Kerr, all the players who you speak to, they all are talking about process. This is all part of this multi-year project that Gustafsson has been brought in specifically to try and manage through. So we are seeing a couple of young players being blooded in the Tokyo Olympics. We've got Tegan Micah. We've got, for example, Kara Cooney-Cross, who is a young sort of prodigy. She's 19. We've got the young Mary Fowler, who's 18, currently playing in France. So we do have a couple of talents here and there that are being given these opportunities and given these experiences because there is the vision within Australian football that these are going to be the players that lead this team forward. Um when it comes to, I guess, uh, the next, I guess, two years, uh, when I look forward to our, our next sort of tournament uh, next year is the Women's Asian Cup, which is supposedly being hosted in India. I'm not sure if that's going to go ahead considering the coronavirus situation. Um, but I think that Asian Cup is going to be even more experimental than what Tokyo is because Tokyo – it, uh, it's Tokyo for me, I think, is a, a it's a tournament where Gustafsson needs to prove himself in some ways to a lot of people. And so I think because of that, his squad selection has been a little bit safe. I think if it was if there were no expectations on the tournament, which there wouldn't be in the Women's Asian Cup because we already qualify for the World Cup afterwards as hosts, we don't actually need to go out and absolutely demolish all of the opposition in that specific tournament. And so Gustafsson has the licence to be a bit more experimental, to bring in some more players, to blood them, to see what they can do and how they can grow over the course of the next year leading into 2023. So absolutely, I, I look at the Matildas over the next couple of years in the context of the next Women's World Cup because that is going to be the thing ultimately that matters to this team, to this generation of players and to the game more generally here. Samantha, thank you so much for your your insight as ever um, on all things Matildas, Australia. Um, and uh, thank you for being our, our de facto Australian correspondent. I'm certain... <laughs> We will have cause to talk again on this podcast um, very soon, maybe after the gold medal in Tokyo. So best of luck um, in Tokyo and thanks so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yes, no, I will absolutely come back on and uh, and debrief when we win the gold medal. That'll be really fun for me. Looking (laughs) forward to it. Really big thanks to Samantha there for her insights on all things Matildas as usual and I am sure that we will have cause to have her back on the podcast again very shortly. Um, But now, as promised, Alex and I will talk to Anne-Marie Posma, who is a Dutch journalist covering the Netherlands national team for quite some time now and we talked to her a little bit about the Arsenal representation, the former Arsenal representation as well in that squad, as well as Netherlands chances this summer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, joining us now, as promised, the absolute expert on all things uh, Netherlands, uh, Dutch women's football and particularly the Netherlands uh, women's team, Anne-Marie Posma. Second appearance on the podcast. Anne-Marie, welcome back and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been an honour. And uh, I, I, I'll, I'll let you in on, well, it's not going to be a secret anymore, but the last episode you were on remains the most downloaded uh, Arsenal Women Ask cast we've had yet in the kind of two and a half years we've been doing this. So um, big expectations. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Big expectations of you, Anne-Marie. We've got a lot of Dutch listeners, put it that way. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for the money. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll write you a royalties check for that. Um, <laughs> before we kind of crack on with um, talking about Netherlands at, at, at Tokyo and the Olympics and all of that, um, obviously, there's only one Arsenal player in the Dutch squad officially now, um, had, having like a mini Dutch exodus. Um, was Gilles Roord and Daniel van der Donk leaving the club this summer. I, I just wanted to pick up with um, with DVD um, first and just ask whether you were surprised um, to see her move uh, to Lyon and, and how you think she'll get on there. Well, I wasn't surprised because obviously the rumours had been there for a while and um, she's been playing for Arsenal for a long time. So I think if you look at it in a in a sportive way, um, she's ready to move on. And I think she wants to, yeah, she's basically talking about this final step, you know, to a bigger club than Arsenal. Um I do understand you don't think there is a bigger bigger club. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's been in her head, and I, I know if there's something that, that that she thinks about, she 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 wants to uh, yeah achieve that. Um, I am surprised because you know we've all been talking about the Premier League, like women's Premier League um, in the Netherlands, and it's been big for so many years. And then suddenly it all seems like, I don't know, it's falling apart or Arsenal is falling apart. And then you, you see these players leave and you think, are they actually leaving? Because, uh, yeah, so um, I don't know. It's just a pity, I think, for a club like Arsenal uh, with this reputation. But, um, yeah, they, they want a little bit more. And I, I think Arsenal lacks... Um, they're not very ambitious at the moment. Well, and, and Dutch players, they all seem to say the same, you know, Ward, Vanderdong, Miedema, like what do they want and where are they going with us? And if they don't give the right signal, then, well, you know, you're going to look somewhere else. Um, and Olympique Lyon, well, it's a very big club. So I do understand that if you get that offer, you don't say no. Um, she's terrible in her French though so she's yeah. <laughs> she's been telling me that she's like yeah I'm yep. slightly worried <laughs> about my French uh, she doesn't speak any French <laughs> uh, but that's the only thing I mean she's very excited about it yeah yeah I, I spoke to her about the French lessons she, she said to me she's kind of on Duolingo at the moment but she doesn't think she'll properly be able to start the lessons until she's over there um, 
and and yeah on the ambition point i mean she again we we interviewed her um a couple of weeks ago and she said much the same thing she said i i know that leon will try to win the champions league mm-hmm. um yeah. and that you know that was that was quite telling and really cut through um an- another player who left arsenal this summer um probably in different circumstances because dvd had been here a long time and really established herself and i mm-hmm. i do think that it was kind of Maybe mutant, maybe mutually agreeable. Like in terms of DVD's been here for six years, I do think it was probably time for something different from Arsenal, yeah. Um, as well, whereas Gilles was only really here for two years, and I, I think we only saw flashes of Gilles Rod's talent at Arsenal, and I think she ran into maybe a similar problem she ran into at Bayern, um, in terms of just the team being quite crowded and I'm not sure she ever really fitted in tactically at Arsenal but what what about um, Gilles moving to Wolfsburg do you see that as a good move for her and, and, and I guess to tie into that what's her status at the moment in the Netherlands team because um, mm-hmm. she does seem to be playing more starting more games yeah, well, I mean, she was asked to move to Wolfsburg, uh, I think, a, a year ago uh, ago already, and then she said no. Um, and then they they hired this um, German trainer, but he's been working for FC Twente, uh, Tommy Stroud, um, and he really wanted her to move to Wolfsburg. So he asked her father, like, "Hey, can you can you help me out? You know, I want I really want Jill on the team." And I know it's been said a lot, but. Um, it is true, like due to COVID, due to virus, I mean, Wolfsburg is closer to her home, to her family. So that, that kind of made her think like, maybe I do want to move closer to home, you know, uh, also because of Brexit and all things going on. Um, and again, it's the same story. I mean, she started thinking about it. And when you start thinking about something about this new adventure, but then the club that you're already in doesn't um, try to keep you. You know, you start thinking about the other thing more and more, and it and it, it it's yeah, it will uh, become more attractive. And you think about, well, maybe I should move. You know, so I know she she felt uh, that way and started seeing it as this fresh new start. And then seeing the the trainer move there, that she knows him very well, uh, and a couple of the Dutch players, um, yeah. So also, it didn't surprise me. It's just a shame for Arsenal. And I, I, I wonder, like, I don't know, you know that better than me, but I wonder what they actually tried uh, to, to keep her, you know? I, didn't, I don't know if they offered her uh, a new contract or anything or just sit, sit around the table with her. Um, and then, yeah, when it comes to her status, it's interesting because she mentioned the problem she had at the beginning uh, with Arsenal. It seems like... She has that problem every time she comes in a team and it seems too crowded for her to fit in. And um, it all kind of like uh, her status in the national team. It's the opposite at the moment because she earned her spot. She actually earned her spot. And she started started at the World Cup um, where she left a really, really good impression, Um, which is funny because she moved from um, number 12 to 19. She asked for a different number, right? Because she didn't want to be the 12th player, uh, as as you mentioned, mostly um, we connect the 12th player with the fans. So she asked for number 19. And now she's a number six for the Olympics. So like she has her spot in the team, which is great. And she's very, very important to the team. Um, I remember we lost against Italy 1-0. 
and it was a team without Ward, without Midema, and without Martins. And we, we weren't able to do anything. And then the next game, it was Norway. We played at home. And Ward, Ward scored, Midema scored twice, uh, Venadong scored, Martins scored. So, you know, that kind of says it all. She's very important. And um, I think also Wigman created a spot for her. Because she, she was very used to play with the right wingers uh, like Shanice van der Sande and Bedestein. And now she uses Ward as a right winger, but she has a lot of freedom. You know, she can be very flexible moving in the middle and in the 16 and into the box. So, yeah, she, she, yeah, how do you say that? She made her usable or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Play to her strengths a lot. I, I, I do agree with that. Um, I particularly enjoyed um, watching Big Man's tactics using Jill um, on the wing for the mm-hmm. Dutch because obviously for Arsenal she plays a bit more of a central role in the midfield. Um, I know Joe was trying to get her to like play off of Viv, but I think that that wing role that kind of Big Man created for her to allow her that bit more freedom that she needs, I think, for her play yeah. has yeah. been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have talked about you know players moving obviously Jill uh, Dan as well to Lyon but then you have other players um, like Anouk Decker went to Portugal I did not see that coming first of all uh, <laughs> and then Nowen going um, to Chelsea and then even like Spitze went back to the Netherlands um, not too long ago so like do you think and obviously with Serena Vigman leaving and a new coach coming in do you think all these changes are going to reflect well on the national team? Um well, I do think so because I think players have started to think more about, you know, that's that's still a big difference in the women's game and the men's game. They also think about their uh, mental health is a pretty strong word, but they, they do think more about staying close to family, relatives, partners. Um, so if they feel comfortable, it will show on the on the national team, right? You can see them just glow. I mean, look at Lika Martins. She admitted she'd been struggling in Barcelona in the beginning. Well, actually for two years. I mean, even since the World Cup when she was injured so many times. And um, But she had this amazing season. I mean, it, it worked out so well. She's been playing really well. And it shows in the national team. Like, she didn't play well for, for a while. But now she's this big star again. Maybe even bigger um uh then 2017 i mean she's obviously grown as a player uh more mature as well so i do think it will reflect on the dutch team but i also think there are some players who will see the olympics as their uh, not their last time to shine but kind of like another highlight like well if we shine here we've got the euros the world cup and the olympics and then you know a player like Anouk Decker, uh, not sure how long she will stay on the national team. Maybe after the Olympics, it will be herself saying like, okay, you know, it's been enough. Um, and then, yeah, Sharita Spitze, um, she's still important for the team. You know, she has this killer free kicks and taking all the penalties. Um, but yeah, there are also new players in line on that position. So we'll see. It's going to be, for sure, it's going to be really interesting what's going to happen over the next year. Yeah, moving to the Euros uh, in your country, actually. <laughs> Excited. No, yeah. We get to move on from the men's now, and then we get to we get to move on to the next women's uh, Euros yeah. all in England. <laughs> um, sorry, Tim. <laughs> 
the next question was was around kind of a particular game that I was interested in um, when the Dutch played Spain. Um, obviously, that mm-hmm. was one nil, but that was kind of the first time that I saw the Netherlands struggle a lot um, compared to after the World Cup. Obviously, I think the production just kept going upwards, and Serena Vigman solidified the team that she had. You know, I mentioned Jill, like she solidified that that role and it, it worked really well. But Spain was kind of the first time that the Netherlands really, really struggled against an opposition team. Um, so yeah. kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on that and kind of post that match as well. And before the Olympics, um, how are you seeing the team right now? Yeah, well, I think it was very good that they played against Spain. And I think it was really good that they lost in the way that they did, because it, it kind of revealed uh, a lot. Uh, I have to say, like, Spain, I mean, not many people know that, right? They see the match on TV and they criticize the Netherlands, but Spain has has an amazing team. And then the next question is like, oh, but they're not on the, uh, they're not on the uh, Olympics. Well, be- that's just a lack of knowledge because they didn't qualify for Olympics. It's a whole different story. But Spain is one of the best teams at this moment. Um, so... Um, the fact that they lost uh, wasn't very surprising to me, but the way they did, um, I know Wichmann struggled with it because it was the way they pressured Spain. They didn't know how to pressure Spain. And I think uh, also if you have another confrontation coming up with the United States, if at the Olympics, yeah. they will have the same problem. You know, How do you pressure a team like that? That's so, uh, they have so many skilled players and Spain, they all played together at Barcelona, you know, and it was almost impossible to defend that team because they and and um, in some positions, I think the Netherlands was also a bit too slow. Like they were, yeah, uh, Spain was just too too fast, you know, one two touches, and then the Netherlands didn't know what to do, and they were all looking at each other like, oh. Um, are you going to put pressure on her? Then I will do this. But then you're already too late. So, I mean, they're in pre-camp now. They're probably um, still talking about the match. If, if I know Wiegman very well, and I do, <laughs> he'll be mentioning the match against Spain and against Italy. Um, and she will tell the players, like, so what do we do? You know, what's the plan? And it comes down to more practice and more, yeah, just backing each other up, I guess. I remember one one point, I think it was end of the first half, if I remember correctly. It was just everyone on his own. Mm-hmm. You know, Van der Donk was running, uh, uh, Spitze was running, Shaki Gune was running, but they, they weren't really working together. Uh, and I think if they, yeah, if you train and you practice and, and you achieve this level of let's work together, we pressure in groups of three or four, and we know when, we know how, we know when to move forward, you know, don't stay at your own half, like, dare to move, push it forward. Yeah. You can beat a team like Spain, even in the United States. I do believe that. Yeah, yeah, and what's, um, my next question, Anne-Marie, was, was going to be, it's interesting you talk about that Spain game, and, and yeah, I watched it, and, you know, I, I think it's clear that Spain are, are like the team in Europe that's that's really coming up and, and a lot yeah. of people have known that for a year or two and, and Italy are getting better as well I think but you know for in terms of the expectation for this tournament because the Netherlands have been you know the prominent team in Europe they won the last Euros they got to the World Cup final last time around um, 
what what are your kind of expectations from this tournament and um in terms of i guess what what do you feel netherlands status is now among like europe's best teams well i mean we've all witnessed that if they have a good day um you know then the netherlands is still a really really strong team I don't think as strong as Spain yet, because there is also the, the problem, like uh, Alex mentioned, like you have players uh, all around the world or, you know, we had five players at Arsenal at some point, uh, which is pretty good for the national team. And we will have the same at Wolfsburg next season, you know, but when everyone is somewhere else, you really need these moments as a national team to train together. And then you need a really skilled coach to, to make it work. Uh, which Wiegman is, but they're not as good as Spain because they have like eight, nine players uh, playing for Barcelona. Um, so, but if you compare it to the teams at the Olympics, I think they have a really good chance of semi-final. I mean, if you look at, um, yeah, I think Team GB. I don't know what you guys think about it because they're not. They're not. Maybe they're not the same collective or uh, performing as a team. But you have the United States. I think Japan is always dangerous. Never underestimate Japan. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you look at the group of the Netherlands, you have Brazil, China, and Zambia. And Brazil is kind of struggling also with in between generations. Um, and China might be the most dangerous one. Because they're they're really strong together, and I read this crazy article on the FIFA.com that they uh, during COVID they couldn't play many matches, but they had this training camp that lasted for 130 days, and w- in which they ran every day. They ran at least 10 kilometers. I was like, hmm. I mean, if you have 11 Chinese players being fit, being strong, and being able, like they never quit, they never give up. Uh, <laughs> might be the hardest challenge in their group. As long as they stop you from scoring, then it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the Netherlands, their strongest point, their strength is that they have so many players that can score a goal. Like they're yeah. not relying on Miedema, they're not relying on Martins, and they're like they're not relying on one person. If the, if you see the match against uh, against Belgium, they had six different goal scorers. Uh, against Norway, they had six different goal scorers. So, um, yeah. And I do think we still have to... No, maybe not as the United States. Yeah, I'm going to say it. We have... Oh. <laughs> I think our attack um, is stronger than the United States. Mm-hmm. With Ward, with Miedema and with Lika Martins. It, the way she plays now, Lika Martins is an absolute star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's fair. I think it, like... Again, Arsenal bias possibly showing here. I think any attack with Vivian Miedemir in it can, can you know, confidently <laughs> put itself among the best. Um, just an, another quite broad general question. You know, what, one of the things that's really defined Netherlands in these tournaments for people who aren't from Netherlands anyway is this, this like great sea of orange, um, particularly in 2017 when the Euros was hosted there. And this kind of, we're used now to like Netherlands games selling out quite regularly in good sized stadiums and things like that. Obviously, we're not going to have that in Tokyo. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like the games will be behind closed doors, but even if they weren't, um, you know, it, it's just not going to be possible um, for that 
that type of fanfare. But how much do Netherlands fans really care about this tournament? Because with the Olympics, I kind of find it really in terms of like football at the Olympics, it really varies from country to country in terms of its importance. How important do you think this is put against, say, the World Cup and the Euros for, for Netherlands fans? Uh, Netherlands fans in general, uh, it's not. <laughs> um, if you look at the football fans, like the women's football fans, it is. I mean, we, we were supposed to have a match, uh, uh, um, a friendly match against South Africa. And sadly, South Africa had uh, five corona cases in the team. So, uh, yeah, that sucked for them. Uh, and then they decided instead of a match, they would do like a, an open practice, like an open training. And there were like thousands, uh, there were a maximum of a thousand people, fans, that were allowed at the KVB in Zeist. And they were all there. Like they managed to organize an event like that in three in three days. And there were a thousand people watching it. And of course it was family and friends, you know, but it was so, I don't know, it was like a great atmosphere. And there were kids wearing jerseys with Martins on the back and Van der Donk and, and they were all waving like, hey, Shanice from the Sanda, you know, and I don't know, it made me really happy that, that whatever they, you know, what they created in 2017 has not faded, where everyone was a little bit skeptical, would it stay, will they keep their popularity or how will it go? Um, and it, it only got bigger, you know, it got bigger during the World Cup. So, I think that the people uh, caring about women's football, they will see the match. Uh, even if we, we have two channels that show the friendly matches here and one is like more uh, an obvious channel is like the number eight or something on telly. And you have like over a hundred thousand people watching or more, but then even on the other channel, which is more hidden, we also do have like a lot of people watching the match. So, yeah, if it comes to football fans, like people watching the Euros for men, uh, no, they, they they won't care. But again, they don't know how big it is. Mm. They don't know it. Like if I mean, they don't know. You have different rules for the men's at the Olympics. You know, you got you got to be uh, twenty up to twenty three. You're not older and stuff like that. And you don't have that rules uh, those rules for the women. Um, mm. Like it's a really if you win the golden medal, it's a really high achievement. Um, yeah, I, I am slightly worried, like you said, <laughs> that um, the, if you look at the matches we lost against Italy, against Spain, they were all away. And we won the matches at home. And, and uh, yeah, we, we've said since 2017, the, this team works really well when they have Dutch fans Mm -hmm. on the side when they have their family when they have their friends and you could see that every time they played home I think it was against Norway there were uh, thousands of fans welcoming and they were all waving you know to their relatives and it was fun to watch it but it makes you think how are they gonna cope in an empty stadium far away in Japan they only have each other and not even always each other because they're alone in their hotel room not not you know they can sit at the pool but then there's nothing else um yeah that makes me worried i don't, I don't know how they're how they're gonna yeah but if you look at their quality semi-final at least at least yeah i was i always uh I, i'm always jealous of dutch fans 
Uh, you are? I, yeah. always, I always wish I was Dutch. Really? <laughs> Pretty much every week I, I think about it at least once. I was like, I really wish I was Dutch. But uh, you think it's extraordinary, the, the, the Dutch fans looking at the, the women's team here? Yeah, because, I mean, you don't see that support um, as equally. Because, like, even we can probably say that it's definitely not equal between the men and the women. But, I mean, Dutch fans, even in the World Cup, I mean, that was amazing. Um, mm -hmm. There was one whole section. It was just orange. Um, <laughs> and you can hear them all over the, the pitch. Um, but just, like, it's what I like about Dutch fans in general. It's the vibe that they give. Um, it's it's so much joy just to watch football, be it men, be it women. It's just the pride of watching your national team play, playing the beautiful game of football. It's just, it's a feeling that you don't really get in a lot of countries. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I do have like Dutch jerseys. Like I have everything. I'm ready to go for the next world, like for the next Euros. Um, but yeah, I do. I think once a week, I just, I do wish I was Dutch. Um, oh, just wow. <laughs> I, I, I wish I was British. I have my <laughs> behind me on the wall. So <laughs> just... <laughs> But I mean, it, it might come, right? Do uh, when the Euros will be in in uh, in England? Don't you think? I would hope so. Yeah. Don't you think it will have the same effect as it had here in 2017? Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. I, well, I'm hoping for it at least. Yeah. Yeah, really hope so. Really hope so. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then with Wichmann, you have the perfect person uh, that will, yeah, create that as well. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But yeah, we, we spoke about kind of the, the difference between the men and the women, because obviously um, when Sweden uh, beat the U.S. in the semifinal, uh, you know, that that's never going to happen in the World Cup, for example. But it happened in the Olympics. Obviously, it's it's not the same caliber um, in terms of, I think, mentality for the U.S. side. And mm -hmm. it's not like when they're in a World Cup, that's kind of that's their home. Um, when yeah. you look back at it in the Olympics they're still the US but again yeah it's, it wasn't penalties but Sweden did beat them um, mm -hmm. but yeah these Olympics kind of going on your expectations for the Netherlands team should they confront a US in a semi-final for example what do you think it's going to happen um, do you think it's going to be more down to you know the heart of playing and wanting to beat them and kind of get the revenge from the last World Cup or is it are they going to struggle just a bit more of that mentality side. Like you said, you know, it's, it is behind closed doors and the Netherlands have struggled with that um, previously. So kind of what do you expect if they have to match up to this? Well, um, in terms of, of, of revenge, uh, Dutch people can be uh, really feisty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they want to get their revenge. Um, so, I mean, you know, Van der Donk, uh, um, yeah, she will fight. <laughs> But um, we played against them, you know, uh, last year and not long ago, and we lost again. Um, it was a close call still. But, yeah, the US, I don't know. You know, I watch them now a couple of times live and they're so strong and they're so fit. And if you want to come to that fitness level, you know, I don't know, there's something else, you know. It's like you have all these national teams and then there's the U.S. And I know they're beatable and I know Holland can beat them. And I also know that when it comes to Olympics, there must be a plan. I mean, they're, they're in Japan right now. And when the Netherlands are preparing for a tournament... Uh, they do it well. Like it won't be if they lose or they they drop out in group phase, whatever. Worst case scenario, of course, then um, it won't be the preparation. There's just it will be because something is wrong in a team or I don't know. Um, but 
um, Serena Wiegman is all about prepping with her staff members and she will have a plan to beat the United States this time. She will. Um, and it comes, I think, maybe 50% just, you know, about having the guts. Like, don't look up, don't look up to them. Like I'm still doing a bit, a little bit, you know, like I'm, I'm putting them really high, like this is the United States. But if you're a player, don't do that. Just think about them, you know, like we can beat them. And um, like I said, if you put Midema uh, next to Martens and you have Ward, you have the creativity, you have the goal score. Um, once you get the ball up there, you have, you can create many chances. But if he plays defensive, like the World Cup final, I mean, we had Bedestein as a striker. We had uh, Martins limping because of her toe. So, you know, so, yeah, we were kind of like disabled. And then Miedema behind Bedestein, uh, I think they learned from it and think, well, we just got to stick to our own plan. Yeah. And Serena Wigman, we trust. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, like staying on the topic of of Serena, um, do you think that's going to give a little extra incentive for the players to kind of send her off um, on a high? Um, yeah, do you think that's just going to play that that little extra push, maybe in a game against the US and in a semifinal and a final, um, when they're kind of low on energy and that mental strength? Do you think when they think about that, is that going to push them just that little bit further that they, that they need? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, like, I think the first thing that comes to their minds is that this will be their first time being on the Olympics, you know? Uh, I spoke to the press manager this morning um, as I missed my call with Viviana Miedema. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I talked to her a little bit and, and she said, you know, all the girls, they're so proud to be walking around in their, uh, we call it Team NL jerseys, like Team Netherlands. Uh, they're so proud of it, you know, so that will be the, the main thing like, hey, here we are. This is our uh, debut on the on the Olympics. And then the next thing, they're not thinking about Wiegman leaving because they leave, you know, they want to leave it until the tournament is over. But yeah, I'm sure they're thinking about like, let's give her a send off and, and do the best we can also for her. But I think the I think the main vibe right now is uh, let's present ourselves, you know, let's present ourselves. Uh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, and you know, to, just to kind of close out, um, uh, like, yeah, I was hoping we'd close out with a question on Serena, um, which Alex definitely handled there. But I I wanted to kind of close with a question about um, looking forward to her replacement, uh, Mark Parsons from uh, Portland Thorns. Um, you know, it, it seemed like quite a lengthy uh, manager search, which, which I think is kind of fine because there was plenty of time to do it. Was um, and I know that Mark has, you know, he's he's from Flow Sports, right? Who um, who Arsenal know very well because that's where Joe Montemoro came from and yeah. where most of um, Arsenal's Dutch players are signed to. Were you first of all were you surprised by that appointment? And what what do you make of Mark Parsons um, being the replacement for Serena? Well, yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I got a phone call from the radio station, I think half an hour after this announcement, and they were like, yeah, so we need a quote from you, and it's got to be in 30 seconds, and it's about Mark Parsons. I was like, um, okay, give me a second. <laughs> and I had to look everything up. I was like, who is this guy? How old is he? Does he have a family? Where is he from? What did he do? So, um, yeah, <laughs> I was surprised. Um 
And uh, I, I had no idea that he was connected to, to flow sports. You know, once the things get rolling, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand the connection and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I've been following the, their search very closely. Uh, and, and I know the length wasn't a problem. It was just the way they did it. It was so incredibly clumsy. Like, you have no idea. I was like... I didn't get it anymore. It's like, what are you doing? Who are you searching for? Are you searching for a man, for a woman? And I, I don't think like they even had the answer, you know? So that's why it took so long. Um, and then I don't think it's bad that he's a man. Uh, I think the most important thing that he has experience in the women's game. So if I look at that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in, in, in uh, yeah, in what he's going to do. Um, I slightly worry because like he's gonna be working for the Portland Thorns another couple of months, so I don't know how he's gonna combine it. I don't know, you know. He was joking about the time difference, like we we were joking at the beginning of the podcast. But honestly, how are you gonna do it? You know, you're gonna get up and watch Dutch players play in Europe, and then do your job at Portland Thorns. So I don't know if it's gonna be, um, yeah, if he's gonna be distracted first first few months but he's young i think uh, he's young he seems prepared like he seems like a guy who wants also to be prepared and he's british so uh i think he wants to win the, the euros <laughs> which mm-hmm. is important you know it's going to be an honor for him but also yeah to, to lift up the trophy with the with the dutch team yeah so i'm curious it was just the way when it was so ridiculous and weird yeah 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 and um and also, I, mean, I don't know how you th- I, i'm sorry i don't know like he's coming there all by himself yeah. like he's not gonna bring a staff member because they already arranged it for him like they choose this a dutch trainer like she's amazing jessica Torney. she's really good and she knows everything about the talents coming up you know next generations but she was there positioned and then they choose him so he's gonna be yeah. here all alone yeah, yeah, and that's interesting actually. And uh, is there something similar is happening with uh, Jonas Eideval, who's managing Arsenal. He's keeping all of the staff in place. Um, okay. Um, yeah. de- definitely for the moment, but he's kind of saying that he wants to do that because he wants to get a better feel for the place, and those coaches know the players and and everything. And uh, whether that changes, like maybe next summer, maybe when he's had a bit more time, I'm not sure. Mm. But but maybe that will happen with Mark as well. Maybe particularly while he's doing that interim kind of between two roles, maybe it just makes sense to to leave that level of expertise. But I mean, I take it being British um, with the Dutch national squad, there shouldn't be much of a language barrier. Um, <laughs> if, if no, there won't, that, won't, that won't be a problem. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I mean, we that. had this Dutch trainer a couple of years ago. I mean, he was Dutch and they had more of a communication problem than I think they would have with any English yeah. <laughs> speaking uh, trainer. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and similar for Arsenal as well. Having a having a Swedish coach, um, again, absolutely no problem there. Um, but Amory, we've taken um, quite a bit of your time, but that was that was really really interesting. Really really uh, grateful for your insights as ever. And uh, I am sure that we will have cause to talk to you again again on this podcast. So thanks so much for joining us, Amory. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
big thanks to my co-host as usual Alex Ibaceta as well as our guests Samantha Lewis and Anne-Marie Posmer and I think you can see why they've been on the podcast more than once um, there are very few people who know more about um, Australia and Netherlands than those two and, and again I'm sure we'll see them again on the podcast at some point in the upcoming season um, like I said this is a two-parter about the four teams that have Arsenal representation at the Olympics so we'll be back later this week and Pippa and I will speak to Rich Laverty about Team GB um, lots of Arsenal interest there with Leah Williamson Lotta Wubben-Moy and of course Nikita Paris in the Team GB squad but also the kind of surprise I guess exclusion of Jordan Nobbs and Beth Mead from that squad so we'll talk to Rich a little bit about that and then I will be talking to uh, Sean Carroll who is a journal, an, an English journalist uh, based in Tokyo and we'll be talking to Sean about about Japan um, the hosts of course who have Mana Iwabuchi who signed for the club this summer so we'll talk to Sean a little bit about Mana a little bit about Japan and their chances but also maybe a bit about the wider context of the games in Tokyo um, and certainly hosting them during coronavirus uh, during a, a very curious time for the world so we hope that you enjoyed this episode we hope that you will download and listen to that episode as well and as ever thank you from the bottom of my heart from Alex's heart from Pippa's heart for continuing to download and support this podcast we really believe in this content um, we really believe that there's a demand for it and that it's important um, but that only becomes true while you're downloading and listening so thank you so much if you feel inclined please do leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and, and make it clear that you're reviewing the Arsenal Women Arsecast because it all helps and hey it's nice to be nice and on that note thank you goodbye take care cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.